It is so wonderful to be with you all, especially in this time of the year. It is a rich time of the year, and and to that end, this is what we will be starting tonight, a series, as it has been mentioned on the miracle of Christmas. And so I have the task of not preaching two sermons, but kind of giving two introductions. One is an introduction to this series, and then an introduction to the message itself. And I know time is limited and I'm long-winded, so let's pray that, that I can speak quickly enough to get through things. But Christmas is rich, and it's not just because of holiday cheer. It's not just because of lots of presents or its sentimental value. Christmas is rich because it is theologically wondrous. It is dense with profundity. For one, there are a lot of passages that we often think about when it comes to Christmas and that are involved in the presentation and the events of the Christmas story. And we do think primarily of the Gospels, but that is not all that there is. There is, to be sure, Matthew, Luke, and even John, but it's not just that. We can find Christmas in the epistles. There is Galatians 4, which speaks of the fullness of time. That's a good way to think about Christmas, that it is so rich and so powerful and all the prophecies and promises of God coming to fruition at a moment that it makes up the fullness of time to herald the Lord Jesus Christ. But it's not just even the epistles that we find Christmas in. It is even in the book of Revelation. Revelation 12 mentions this in highlighting redemptive history from beginning to end. And Christmas is not just found, though, in the New Testament, whether that be Gospels, Epistles, or the book of Revelation. It is also found in the Old Testament. There are a lot of prophecies and a lot of predictions foretelling about this moment. We could start in Genesis 3.15, which predicts that a man, the man, will come to crush the serpent's head. We could talk about Numbers 24, verse 17, which speaks to the same kinds of truths. We could look at the book of Exodus. We could look at the book of Hosea, which speaks of how just as God delivered in the first Exodus, he will deliver again. And just as God raised up a deliverer, Moses, who in the circumstances of his birth, there was a king who desired to kill all the baby boys, we can see a parallel in Christmas because God is raising up a certain kind of deliverer. God is executing his plan once again that he has prophesied and predicted earlier on. We can see this in prophecies like Isaiah 7, the virgin birth, and Isaiah 9, for unto us a child is born and given, or Micah 5, 2, where the Messiah will be born as the new David in Bethlehem. And speaking of a new David, you can even see this in the book of 1 Samuel, which has a protocol for welcoming the king. You have in 1 Samuel a permanent Nazarite, that is Samuel, welcoming a king, that is David, in a variety of circumstances, then that matches exactly what happens in the New Testament. You have a permanent Nazarite, that's John the Baptist, welcoming in the king of kings, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ, in a variety of similar-looking circumstances. God has a way to announce his king. He has laid that out in the Old Testament so that we are aware when it happens in the New Testament. You have the book of Daniel that intersects Christmas, because Daniel Daniel introduces us to the angel Gabriel, who's a big player in the book of Luke, introducing us to Christmas. And at the very end of the Old Testament, you have Malachi, 
who talks about a messenger who will herald the king of kings. And we know that that is fulfilled in John the Baptist. And so it's not just the Gospels that talk about Christmas. There are lots of texts, really from Genesis to Revelation, that speak about Christmas. And with that, Christmas is profound not only because there are a lot of texts that speak about it, but there's a lot of theology that goes into it. A lot about the glories of Christ. You can talk about the theology of the virgin birth or the prophecies that are fulfilled to make Jesus and to declare Jesus as the ultimate king. You can talk about the fullness of time and history. You could talk about angels and the theology of angels and what they declare and how even what they declare in the book of Luke is a foretaste of the future. There is an anticipation, an eschatological anticipation that is involved in Christmas. You could talk about the culmination of everything to make sure that it is declared with clarity that Jesus is the king of kings and the lord of lords, all of history, all nations, and all governments are arranged for that moment. And so Christmas, in a lot of ways, is the intersection of grand ideas, the natural and the supernatural, history and prophecy, the height of being the king of kings, and at the same time, humility. You have angels to wise men, and all of these things are by God's design, a design to declare, this is my son, Adore him. Christmas is glorious because it is the welcome of the King of Kings. And so Christmas is rich. There's a lot of passages and there's a lot of theology. And that's a good thing because there are a lot of Christmases, Lord willing, in our lives. So we'll need a lot of different things to preach on to say for every single Christmas. However, in the midst of dealing with all this and in the midst of the depth of Christmas, what we like to focus on in the next three weeks is actually a singular point of Christ's first coming, of his incarnation. In fact, it is actually the very moment of his incarnation, the very moment the word became flesh. Now, that, of course, that's assumed. You cannot have any of the events of Christmas. You cannot have any of the events of the Lord Jesus' life. You can't have any of that unless you have that singular event where God took on humanity. And so because it's assumed, it's often overlooked. It's often taken for granted because it's presumed. But that moment of the incarnation itself is, is profound. Again, We are not talking about just the birth or the events that happen around the birth of Christ. Yes, that's involved in Christmas, but we're not just talking about the things that surround the incarnation. We're not just thinking about things that come subsequent to the incarnation. We are thinking about the substance of the very second, the very millisecond, so to speak, of when God became man. That is very moment. And there is a lot of theology in that moment. There is a lot of complexity. There are a lot of things involved that we often don't think about with Christmas, but we ought to. And in this way, this road is, in a sense, the road less traveled in Christmas, because we will be covering applications of Christmas that are not often conceived of, but ought to be. And one of those, one of those which we're covering this evening, is the idea of humility. Humility. And so from one introduction to the next one. 
We often know that humility is essential and it's critical for the Christian life. We know the danger of pride. We know that pride comes before the fall. We know that God gives grace to the humble. We know that if you are stiff-necked, you will be broken, as the Proverbs remind us. We know that God hates the proud, and he uplifts in the end the humble, and humility is never offensive, and it is crucial for unity. We know how important humility is. And at the same time, we also know how much we struggle with humility how hard it is. In fact, it's so hard that we just make fun of how hard it is. People say things like, I'm so proud, I'm humble. Or they say, I'm the humblest person I know. Or people joke that they want to write a book entitled, How I Got So Good at Being Humble. And I'm proud of it. We chuckle at all of that because we know humility is seemingly an impossible task. The moment you think you're humble, you're not. That's the problem. And in fact, we, it's not just that we don't know how to be humble. We don't even know what humility is. What is humility? What does it look like? What does it mean? And we say, well, I think it's this. And we say, well, if you do that, it could be fake. It couldn't be genuine. And so it's not really that. And, and we start to make up definitions and they all don't work. And it's very hard to get our hands around what humility is. And thereby, it's even more difficult to know how to be humble when you don't even know what it means. So what is humility? How do you have it? What does it look like? What is it? And here is Paul's answer to it. And he says, Christmas. Christmas is the definitive, the greatest demonstration and definition of humility. Turn with me to Philippians chapter 2, verse 7. This is Paul's definition. And he says Christmas, the moment of the incarnation. And so here we can tie everything together. Yes, we want to talk about the profundity of Christmas, and Christmas has theological depth. And yes, at the same time, we also struggle with this issue of humility. It is a besetting sin for so many. Pride is dangerous, as we know. And now the road less traveled about Christmas meets with our desire to be humble. And they come together in this singular text, Philippians 2, verse 7. And what our goal is, is to really understand Christmas in the way that Paul desires us to see it. The moment of the incarnation, the way Paul desires us to see it. And in so doing, here is the agenda. It is simple. When we really think about the incarnation... In this singular verse, Philippians 2, verse 7, it ought to humble us. It ought to humble us because we understand the depths of what our God will do for us. And at the same time, it'll cause us to be humble. It'll humble us and it'll cause us to be humble. Philippians chapter 2, verse 7. Now some context is necessary to set up all this properly. And if there is any context that needs to be said, if there is any point of the book of Philippians, it is this, that Philippians is a book about unity. It is a book about common fellowship in Christ to witness to the world. From the 
perspective of historical backgrounds, what we have is in the book of Philippians, we know that there is conflict between Iodia and Suntuke. And so there is this conflict in the church and Paul must address it and in, in he understands that it is vital to our testimony to address it and so he will. And this city, the city of Philippi, is a crucial city. It is a great city to address this topic to because they, in their background, they rally around the reality that they are honoring. Roman citizens. It's something that they prided themselves in. It is something that they came together around. They knew how to come together for a cause. And so because of all the things that are happening and all the circumstances that are ensuing, Paul, under the inspiration of the Spirit, took the opportunity to talk about a crucial doctrine, a crucial universal reality for the church to the Philippians through this very epistle. And you see the emphasis on unity, even from the very first verse. Look at Philippians 1 verse 1. It talks about Paul and Timothy, and they're slaves of Christ Jesus. And notice what it says to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, along with the elders and deacons. Did you notice that elders and deacons are listed alongside of, along with all the saints? Even though they may have leadership positions, even though they may have influence in the church, even though they might be known, Paul lists them alongside. Why? From the very greeting, he wants to talk about unity. He wants to talk about how we are all together. He wants to talk about in a way we are, even though there may be functions and even though there may be roles, we are all one in Christ. We are all linked together. From the very greeting, He leads off with an emphasis on unity. And that continues. The very first imperative in Philippians 1 verse 27 is about unity, about conducting ourselves as gospel citizens together in this world. And in the end of the book, that culminates in the exhortation to those two women who are feuding in the church. And so from beginning and middle and end, this book is all about unity. It is all about common fellowship. It is all about our common bond in Christ and testifying that before the watching world. And crucial within this notion of fellowship is the idea of thinking. The idea of thinking. Repeatedly, over and over and over again, Paul talks about thinking. Philippians 1 verse 7 Think this. It's right for me to think this way about you. Philippians 2 2, have the same thinking. Philippians 3 15, he says for the people to think this way. And there is no other way to think because he condemns the false teachers in Philippians 3 19 for thinking about the things of this world. Chapter 4, verse 2, they need to have the same way of thinking. And in verse 10, he talks about how he was pleased that they were thinking about him. Think, 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 think over and over and over and over again. It's a major issue because unity is not achieved by some motivational speech. Unity is not achieved by some inspirational message or some emotional feeling. For Paul, biblically speaking, unity is when we're all thinking on the same truths, thinking the same way, having the same convictions, being fixed to the scripture and fixed to the right truth of the cause of Christ. Thinking is vital for unity as thinking is vital for our sanctification. We must understand that. And this whole notion of thinking will be so important, so don't forget 
to think about it for later. Now, along with this notion of thinking, humility, of course, plays an important role in unity, and Paul knows that. And so having talked about unity from the very first verse, having modeled it as he demonstrates tremendous humility and demonstrates why he's humble, because for him to live is Christ and to die is gain. And then having not only motivated and modeled humility, but having mandated it as he commands unity and humility in chapter 1, verse 27, Paul moves from having discussed why you should have humility and unity to what it is to how to have it in chapter 2. And he says, if you want to understand how to have unity, if you want to understand how to have true humility, verse 5 of chapter 2, think this way. Have the same thinking in you that was also in Christ Jesus. How did Christ do things? That's the way you want to follow. He's the one you want to imitate. And it says in verse 6 what he did not do, Christ did not do, and namely it is this, though being in the image, in the form of God, he did not consider it to be, uh, he did not consider equality to God, with God to be something to be grasped. That's what it says in the text. In other words, you could think of it this way. Jesus never used his divinity to leverage it for his own personal gain. He did not utilize his deity so that he could have some selfish or narcissistic advantage. We shouldn't either. But that doesn't tell us what humility is. That just tells us what humility does not do. So what should humility do? What does it actually mean? What does it actually look like? And that brings us from verse 6 to verse 7. And it says this, that he emptied himself. And so here we have the definition. We've moved through this book that, need, that talks about unity, that talks about humility. We've had the motivation behind it. We've had the modeling of it. We've had it mandated. We've had the what and the why. And now we've begun the how, and we've learned how not to be humble, what humility does not look like. And now we have the key. Paul says, this is it. This is what humility is. This is the substance of it. And it is that he emptied himself. And right there, right then and there, we have a lot of controversy. Theologians have even a special word for this controversy. And the controversy is, what in the world does it mean that Christ emptied himself? That, that sounds kind of scandalous. And people make up all kinds of things. They say, well, Christ emptied himself of his glory. Or, they, or maybe he emptied himself of his independent exercise of his authority. Or some people say he emptied himself of his prerogatives of deity. Other people say, oh, well, he emptied himself of his insignia of majesty. And others will say, oh, well, he emptied himself of certain attributes of deity, like all the omnis of deity. And sometimes they say, oh, well, I think he emptied himself of being equal with God. People make up all kinds of things. All kinds of things. The ivory tower is full of books and articles and essays and dissertation after dissertation after dissertation after dissertation, all trying to figure out the answer. What does it mean? What does it look like? How in the whole wide world did Christ empty himself? And as they all 
have compiled views throughout all time and space, there is at least two pieces of agreement that people have erroneously made. One is they all speculate on what Jesus had to lose because if he emptied himself, he had to lose something. And the second problem is that they say, well, then we don't just have to speculate on what he lost. We have to presume then that he lost something. And so they always say Jesus lost something and they always speculate on what exactly he lost. And like I said, the ivory tower is filled with a lot of ink and a lot of paper on this issue. People believe that you can never figure out what this word and what it looks like could ever be. Thankfully, we're going to solve it this evening. Not because I'm a genius, but just because Paul does. Because the next phrase tells you. They just stop reading too quickly. Notice, particularly the Legacy Standard Bible translation has it right. He emptied himself, how? By taking on the form of a slave, by coming in the likeness of men. That's how. That's what Paul says. No more dissertations. Paul declares the conclusion. He tells you exactly how this works. He tells you exactly what it means. And here's the strategy for this evening. We are going to be covering these phrases. And we're going to be seeing, yes, what does it mean that he took on the form of a slave? What does it mean that he came in the likeness of men? And as we go through those phrases, it will help us to understand why does Paul use such a dramatic term that Christ emptied himself? What does that mean? And why does Paul talk about it that way? And that through this strategy, through this discussion, we will understand then the wonder of Christmas and how miraculous it is that indeed what has happened here in the moment of the incarnation should humble us. And it will definitely compel us to be humble. So with that, there are three points for this evening, and the first of which is this, the meekness of Christ. The meekness of Christ. Notice the phrase, verse 7, taking on the form of a slave, taking on the form of a slave. What is fundamentally essential to know about this phrase, for it to have the power, even the shock that it is supposed to have, the substantive force that it is meant to exert, we need to really understand this word, this word form. Even the English word form has the notion of a shape, has the notion of a silhouette, has the notion of an appearance. And that's true. Form does fundamentally mean something external. But there's a lot more in that word because it's not just talking about one superficial external appearance, but one which their appearance is so clear and it's so obvious, you know what they are through and through. You know by actually the outside what they are on the inside. I know oftentimes you can't judge a book by its cover. We understand that. But in this case, what is talked about with form is that it is so obvious, so clear, so visible, 
so magnificent that you can judge a book by this cover. It is indicative on the outside what it is on the inside. And some people just have this gift sometimes to have such discernment. They can look at a car and they can say, that's a good car. I look at the car, I say, I I have no idea. I mean, how, how, how can you even know that? But they just know that. It also reminds me of a time recently where somebody was holding a piece of fruit at a party, and they said, is this real fruit? And I'm thinking, I don't know. How are we supposed to know that? And one person looked at it and goes, yes, that is real. I can tell. I'm thinking, how can you tell? Even if I ate it, I couldn't tell. (laughs) Some people understand. They just take one look, and they know what from the outside it is to the inside. But form is stronger than that. Form is not just that some people have a special gift to discern from the outside to the inside. Form is, it is so obvious, everybody can tell. Notice, by way of illustration, simply put, verse 6, who had, Jesus had the form of God. Everyone knows if they saw and when they see the glorified Christ, they know through and through this is God. They know through and through all that is in God is in Christ. He is divine, Everything that is God is him. There is no mistaking of that. That is why when people are confronted by the divine majesty from Old Testament to New Testament, they fall on their face like dead men. There is no question about it. They know who God is. And when God appears, there is no question about what that is. That's form. Put differently, form means this. Everything that is in it, all the quality, all the quantity, it is there. From outside, in, inside, out, all of that, through and through. And this is vital. This is vital. Because what we're about to talk about is not just that Jesus had a component. It's not just that he had an aspect. It's not just that he had a piece. It's not just that he looked this way. It's not just that it appeared this way. It is that he had everything in fullness, in its totality, exhaustively, inside, outside, outside, inside, everything, quality and quantity. And what did he have? What does the text say? He took on the form of a slave. Now just let that sit in. In America, we are very sensitive to the notion of slavery, and rightly so, given our torrid history and the atrocities committed around it. And even the Bible, for this very reason, condemns certain forms of slavery. You can see this in the book of Exodus. Israel had to be delivered from Egypt. There was a wicked slavery. There is an evil slavery. And God delivered his people from that. But he delivered them from one slavery to another. In fact, that is why God says that Israel will be freed so that they would serve him. In other words, that they would be his slave. He delivered them from one slavery to another. You are a slave of sin or you are a slave of righteousness. There is a wicked form of slavery and it is right to make that distinction even as there is a right form of slavery. It all just depends on your master. It all just depends on your master. And so it is legitimate to make distinctions. And so when we talk about slavery, we can do so. And we can even mention, as it is often mentioned, that philosophers in the New Testament time and bankers and doctors and artisans and professionals can be slaves. That's true. 
It's not just necessarily grunt work. It is not just necessarily dehumanizing work. People could even be paid as slaves. People could even be part of the family and be a slave. All of that is true. But here's our problem. Even though we try to put really good and helpful qualifications on this idea, and we should, but we are at risk of missing the main idea. The very deep and even somewhat heart-wrenching and uncomfortable point Slave still means slave. There's a word that can talk about a paid person who is a slave. This word is not it. There is a word that talks about if you're a professional and you're a slave. This word is not it. There is a word for if you are a slave and you become adopted into the family. This word, though, here, is not that word. This word, talking about the Lord Jesus Christ, is the word slave. Slave. Because this word, what it conveys is that a slave has fundamentally no power, no rights, no freedom. They are subject under another authority, and their will is bound to the will of another. Mary is a good example of this. Do you remember when she receives news that there will be the virgin conception? What does she say? The bondwoman, the slave of the Lord. Let the Lord's will be done. She has no choice. She's the slave of Yahweh. His will will be done, and her will is bound to that. That lowliness, and in times because of such lowliness, the disgrace and dishonor, that is what it means to be a slave. And we cannot qualify that raw idea. So let's say it again. Jesus became a slave. Think about it. God being a slave. The one who owns all things will now be owned. The one who makes all choices now has no choice. The one who has all power becomes powerless. The one who is the master, full of authority, lofty, high, dignified, the head of all things, now is the slave of no reputation, of no authority, of no independence, disregarded. That's God in this moment of the incarnation. And you say, well, how? Yeah, that's just too opposite of things. Are you really sure we can put this together? And that's where the word form comes in. Because Paul's not just saying, well, he had a little bit of slavery. He got a little taste of it. He got a sampler package. He got something on the appearance level. He got something superficial, something external. No, what does the word form mean? Everything qualitative and quantitative. Inside, outside, outside, inside, every single thing in total fullness, all that it is to be a slave all of it in perfection, Jesus had. Jesus had. He had it all. And you say, but how could, how could the one who owns all things now be owned? How could the one who, who made the choices have no choice? How could the one who is boundless in a sense be bound? That, that doesn't make any sense. Something's gotta give. No, nothing gave. Nothing gave. 
There was no loss. People often think there was a loss. There is no loss. Notice what the verb says. It says that he took on the form of a slave. He took the form of a slave. Now, the last time I checked, when you take something, you're not given. You're not giving up anything when you take. When I take your money, that's not me donating. When I take food from the table, I'm not on a diet. When you take something, it isn't that you've lost. You've actually what? You've gained. This is what we call subtraction by addition. Subtraction by addition. Jesus never lost a thing. Jesus, that's, Paul doesn't say Jesus lost anything. Paul doesn't say anything was subtracted from Jesus directly. It says this, that he took something on. He had something added to him. There was an augmentation, if you will, to the Lord Jesus Christ. And there's another way to think about it. Notice verse six, he is in the form of God because he is God, very God. And now he takes on the form of a slave. So he is both in the form of God, God, very God, truly God, as well as the form of a slave, slave, very slave. Both are true. Both are true. Added on without compromise, without subtraction, without modification, without qualification. That's what Paul asserts. There was no loss here. And in fact, if you think about it, it heightens the intensity of what's taking place. Because throughout his incarnation, Jesus was fully God, fully master, fully powerful, fully chooser, fully owner, even as he was the one owned, no choice, without power. That's the tension he bore the entire time. That is what happens here. As 2 Corinthians 8 says, him being rich, he became poor. He was rich the whole time. And he endured all of that poverty while being rich. That's the level of sacrifice that he made. And you say, but these two things just don't go together. There's such a tension. You need to feel it. And that, upon feeling it, should cause us to ask the question, why? why? Why does he do this? Why go to such an extreme? Why degrade yourself in such a way? What's the point? It's this, because that's what it's going to take to save you and to save me. That's what it's going to take. You see, we don't obey. Our will is not bound at all, practically speaking, to the desired will of God. We, we do not perfectly submit. We are far from that. We perfectly are unsubmissive. We do not yield to God's will. So someone has to do it for us, and he has to do it for us perfectly. And how do you perfectly submit? What does it mean to have such perfect submission, such perfect subjection, such perfect obedience, bound incessantly and absolutely to someone else's will, it means this, you're a slave. And that's exactly what Jesus became. That's exactly what he took on. He became a slave. In fact, he had slavery perfected. 
He had slavery perfected so that he could take our place and obey in a way that we never could obey. That's what he had to become for our sake. And it wasn't just in his life, it was in his death because that's where perfect obedience for the Messiah must go. That's where perfect submission, that's where it's really tested. Will you go to the cross and face wrath and will you stay there until the price is paid and will you do all of that and yield and yield and yield as the perfect substitute all the way to the end? And if you can do that, you are the perfect slave. And if you can do that, it is exactly the fulfillment of Isaiah 53. And what is the Messiah called in Isaiah 53? The suffering servant, the suffering slave. Because that is who he must be. Why? Why does he have to become a slave? Why such a juxtaposition? Why such a contrast? Because that's what it's going to take to fulfill all righteousness for you and me, to do obedience and to have submission in a way that we never can do. His must be perfect. And if his is perfect and his submission is pure and absolute and all the way, then he must be a slave. And that's what it's going to take for such submission to go to the cross, to go to that length. That's what it's going to take. And that's what it will take for him to fulfill what it means to be a slave, the suffering servant, the Messiah. Why does he have to do this? Why go to such an extreme? Why does the king of kings have to be the slave of slaves? Why does the one who is, owns all things have to be owned? Why does the one who is adored and ultimately worshiped by all of heaven have to be disregarded? It is because that's what it takes to save you and to save me. Nothing less than that. Put it this way. Sometimes we wonder, does God, does God love us? Does God love us? God's simple reply would be this. He would become a slave for you. He would leave heaven and become a slave for you. In fact, he didn't, it wasn't just that he would become a slave. He did. He did. And that, brothers and sisters, is the miracle of Christmas. That is the miracle of Christmas, the meekness of Christ. Well, it's not just that he's meek. Here's the second point. He's mild. He's mild. Notice the next phrase, verse 7. Coming in the likeness of men. Coming in the likeness of men. Just as our Lord did not leave or lose his divinity in any way, but he took on. It was subtraction by addition. He took on subjection. So the same applies here with the word becoming or coming as in the likeness of men. Whenever you become or whenever you come, it presumes that you were somewhere else and something else before that. There was pre-existence for the Lord Jesus Christ. If, if we said that the vanilla ice cream became a Sunday, well, it presumes that there was vanilla ice cream before the Sunday. If we say a child becomes an adult, we don't mean that all of a sudden, poof, out of midair, there materializes an adult. No, there was a child 
There was something before that. And so when we say that Jesus became or Jesus came into the world in the likeness of men, it presumes that he was something else before that. It presumes his preexistence. It presumes exactly what Philippians 2, 6 says, that he is in the form of God, perfectly God, obviously God. That's what applies to all kinds of language. Jesus says, the Father sent me. Well, if you were sent into this world, then that means you had to have someone send you and someone outside of the world, which means you're not of this world. If you came in the world, you had to come from somewhere. And so obviously Jesus came from God. All of these terms and all of this language demonstrates his pre-incarnate existence as God. And furthermore, that this word is put positively, that he became, not did not become, or lose something, or give up something, or anything like that, that he became something means that there's an, addition, there's an emphasis on addition, not subtraction. That he became something as opposed to not becoming something means that he did not lose anything. Rather, he took something on. And so, even as he is fully glorious, and even as he is fully majestic, and none of that was lost, none of that was diminished in any fashion, He took something on. And what does it say here? It says he took on the likeness. And Paul here is a precise theologian. He's a precise theologian because the word likeness, as the word like means, it discusses not identity, not equality. It discusses similarity. Can be a lot of similarities and maybe not so many similarities. It reminds me one time when a kid said to me, you know, Spinach and steak, they're like each other. And I looked at the kid and I thought, no. He says, yeah, yeah, they're they're very similar. They're like each other. I'm thinking, how do you even come up with that? And he said, because both can be cooked. (laughs) Okay, I'll give you that. That's true. They may share that one point of likeness. But that's about it. And you might say that's a stretch. Sure. But that's demonstrating the nature of what it means to be like something else. There are similarities, but there are also differences. And Paul, the precise theologian, he says that Jesus came in the likeness. Why? Because it echoes another text in Romans chapter 8 where it says that Jesus came in the likeness of sinful flesh. Why? Did he come in the flesh? Absolutely. Did he come with sin? No, he did not. He did not. He came in all that it means to be man. Speaking of which, it is for this very reason that in Romans chapter 1, the word likeness is used in conjunction with the image of God in man, the image of man himself. Christ has everything that is in the likeness of man, in the image of man, all that it truly means to be a man, all that it truly means to be a human being, all that is contained in form and in nature and in experience, he has that yet without sin. That's what this text declares. Paul is a careful theologian. And yes, he is in the likeness, as the text says, of men. He has that form. He has that nature. He has that experience. And he took it all on so that as he walked around, from a visible perspective, no one could distinguish him from any other man. That is what 
has happened, and that is according to exactly what is prophesied even in Isaiah chapter 53. And we see this in the Gospels. Though medieval paintings will put a halo on Jesus' head, that's not how he walked around. If he walked around in full glory, the Gospels would read really different. He was transfigured for a period of time, and when that happened, he put people in a coma. So can you imagine if he just was walking glorified all around town? You would not have any conversations. There would be no questions. There would be no debates. There would be no arguments. There would be no opposition. There would be no arrests. There would be no attempted stonings. There would be no trials. No one would try to kill him. Instead, everyone would just be on the ground, either asleep, in a coma, or dead. That's how the Gospels would read. But that that didn't happen means this. He took on the form of a man. And the glory that he had was covered. And so what we have seen is that, yes, the master takes on slavery and added subjection. That's his meekness. And the one who is glorious with overwhelming and overpowering majesty takes on humanity to have a covering, a restraint for that glory. And that's why he becomes mild. He becomes mild. But that restraint isn't the main reason why he took it on. Yes, to be sure, if you wanted conversations and you wanted movement and you wanted interaction in the Gospels, that had to happen, but that's not the only reason why. You see, notice the word here in Philippians 2.7. It doesn't say that he came in the likeness of a man. It says he came in the likeness of men. Not singular, but what? Plural. It wasn't just that he came in the likeness of one guy. He came in the likeness of a person. He came in the likeness of a human being. No, he came in the likeness of humanity collectively. He absorbed and bore all that men, plural, bear, their collective experience, their collective burden, their collective occasion, their collective existence. There is a phrase in theology, that which Christ took on, he redeemed. That which Christ took on, he redeemed. What did Christ take on? Think about this from beginning and middle and end. You might say, well, what about growing up? And there's a lot of troubles growing up. Did he take that on? He took that on. Why? Because he came in the likeness of men. Oh, what about pain and sickness? He took that on. What about hunger and exhaustion? He took that on. What about loss? He took that on. What about being misunderstood? He took that on. What about external pressure? He took that on. What about sleeplessness? He took that on. What about rejection? He took that on. What about hurt? He took that on. What about grief? He took that on. What about betrayal? He took that on. What about death? He took that on. Sometimes in life we wonder as we just are wrecked with pain and there are trials and there is burden and our hearts are wrenched and and we see the disasters of this world and the suffering of children and the suffering of peoples and we see our own suffering and our fellow believers suffering and we just think, is there any way that God cares about this and is there any way that he will make this right? Brothers and sisters, he did. He did. Because that which Christ took on, he redeems. And what did he take on? What does this text say he took on? He took on the likeness of men. 
all that it means to be a man, all that it means to be a human being, all the collective experience, all the totality of existence, he took that on. And what should be very clear to us then is that Christ did not just suffer at the cross, though he did in an immeasurable way, but that immeasurable suffering was his whole existence was his whole existence. He is the man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. Why? Because every moment he's here, in the likeness of men, he is just taking on burden after burden after burden after burden after burden after burden so that he can redeem you, all of you, from all your sin. That's why he did it. You want to know the real miracle of Christmas? It's not just that the word became flesh and the mechanics therein. Yeah, it's a profound mystery that you can have someone truly God and truly man and how that exactly works. That's a miracle to be sure. But you want to know part of the miracle of the incarnation? It's this, that at that moment, the word became flesh. What was solidified there, what was marked there, what was embraced there was that Christ took on every burden for us everything to redeem for us, and he did it right at that moment, though he need not to. That's a real miracle. And this leads us from meekness to mildness to the final point, which is that this moment is momentous. This is momentous. We've talked about that he's taken on the form of a slave. We've talked about that he's come in the likeness of men. And now we return, verse 7, that he emptied himself. What does that mean? Why does Paul use this word? What's going on here? And maybe we should first clarify what it doesn't mean. Like we said, lots of scholars, lots of nerds, everyone in the ivory tower, they say, well, something had to have been lost and, and of course, he lost something. That's what it is. Well, that's wrong. Here's what we've learned. He didn't just lose anything. That's not what's going on at all. The participles, they, they limit what is going on. The phrases afterwards, they limit what is going on. They express and articulate what is going on. And furthermore, there was no loss. When you take on something, that's not losing. When you become something, that's not losing. You have had only additions, no subtractions, no diminishing, no relinquishing. It is subtraction by addition. That's it. So now we know that that's not what happened. There's no loss. That's not what empty means in this case. And you say, well, okay, well, why then does Paul use this word, empty? It's so dramatic. It's so provocative. It it just rubs us the wrong way in a sense. Why does he use this word? It goes back to this. Do you remember... Did you think about the word think? It's used all the time in the book of Philippians, is it not? Think this way. Have the same way of thinking. Think, 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 think. Why does Paul say this? Why do we emphasize it? Why do we need to remember it here? Because it's absolutely fascinating that the word that Paul uses for humility isn't just the word humility. It's this. Think humble. Think humble. Humble. It is humble thinking. In fact, you can even see it in Philippians chapter 2, where Paul says, Think 
have be humble of mind, verse 3, or have humble thinking. Why? Because Paul knows something about what it means to be humble from a human being, a pure mortal's perspective. And it's this. You and I, to be humble, all we have to do is think about it. It's not, we don't have to actually lower ourselves. Sometimes when we think about humility, we think, oh, I'm up here and I just got to get down, get, get lower, kind of knock myself a couple levels and then I can be humble. Paul says, that's ridiculous. You already came lowly. You're already lowly. You don't have to do that. All you have to do is just think about yourself the way you really are. Put it really simple. We're all losers. All we have to do is just know that and live like that and act like that. We don't have to make ourselves that way. There is no activity involved. You just have to think. That's it. That's what humility is all about. You don't have to change yourself. You don't have to feel like you have to lower yourself. You are already rock bottom. I am there with you. We're all there together. All we have to do is look in the mirror and think honestly. That's it. That's it. There's nothing more than that. But Christ, not so. Christ, not so. He actually had to lower himself. He actually had to go from one level to another. And that he had to add on means this. He did not have that originally which means there was an actual addition. There was an actual change. There was an actual degradation. We just think it. He actually did it. He actually did it. So you want to know why? Do you want to understand why Paul uses this word empty? Do you want to understand why this strong word, with all its provocation, with all of its extremity, with all of its drama is used? Here's why. Because what Paul is pointing us to is that at Christmas, something happened that never has happened in all of human history. Something that has never happened in all of human history. Something that has never happened in all of human experience something that cannot happen by man because all we can do to be humble at best is just think a certain way. That's all we can do is just think a certain way. But that's not what Christ did. He actually did something. He actually lowered himself. Something that we cannot do. We think we do, but we never have done it in our entire life. He did it. And to commemorate to commemorate that unique occasion and to commemorate that unique experience and to convey what we have never been able to express and never could encroach upon with our experience and never have felt before in our entire life or with our entire being. Paul uses this word to communicate to us the grandeur and the sacrifice of that which we have never been able to do, never have ever tasted, never have ever touched, but Christ did for us. And that, God actually humbling himself, is the miracle of Christmas. We have never done it in our entire life. He alone has. And that's why he emptied himself. He didn't lose anything, but he actually did something for us. He actually humbled himself. And we have never, ever, ever come close to that. Brothers and sisters, 
Do you want to know how far our God goes for us? That he would do that. And brothers and sisters, do you understand how embarrassing it is to be proud? When our God actually degrades himself, why would we ever stick out our chest and pretend we're something? When our God does that, it's embarrassing to be proud in light of our God. Christmas is amazing. It's miraculous in many ways. And like I said, hopefully through this, we are both humbled and become humble. Because in a singular moment, in a single second, mystery of mysteries, God became a slave. The high king of heaven took on subjection. And he took on the likeness of man, taking on all our burdens, bearing all that it is that we are meant to redeem us. And in doing so, he did what we could never do. And he bore away what we could never bear away. And he actually, at that moment, humbled himself. He became meek in that way. He became mild, but he did something momentous in doing so because he alone could do that. That's a singular moment of history. And no man, no person, no man or woman could ever do that. And so this should humble us that God would do this for you and me. Who are we? And it should make us be humble because you can understand how distasteful it is to God and how shameful it is that we could ever act proud when we are not even moving a level to another level. We have nothing to be proud of. Humility for us is just thinking accurately about who we are. That's it. That's it. God actually was humble. God actually was humbled. We never have been. And that leads us then to this conclusion. May we bow low before the God who became lowly for us. And may we always walk humbly before God and man, especially this Christmas. Shall we pray? Our God and Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ and capture in our heart and mind that which is so difficult to articulate, the vast chasm that was spanned when you became man, when you became the slave, when you took on human flesh. Convict us deeply of what great sacrifice, what great love, what true and great humility. That is where it's found. And may we be ashamed of any time we've boasted in ourselves, bragged about our accomplishments when we are nothing and we have done nothing. You alone have done it. You alone are worthy. And you alone became humble. May that always cause us to be meek and lowly and to love the Lord Jesus Christ for all that he took on for us. To him be all the glory. In your name we pray.
Amen.